If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to take it out. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Uh, I'm going to be leading us in our study this morning of the book of Colossians. We're moving through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, hoping to understand what is in this letter that Paul wrote uh, to this church at Colossae, a city and a people that he'd never met, that he'd never been to in person, but that he was seeking to, to teach about what it means to be in Christ, to follow Jesus. And that letter has a ton of relevance to us today. Uh, so Colossians 2. We are in uh, verses 8 through 10 this morning. Uh, If you did not get a listening guide, a little piece of paper on your way in, uh, if you would like one, just slip up your hand and Dave will get you one from the back. Uh, It's got our text, it's got uh, an outline, place to take notes, so that can help you as you follow along this morning. But we're picking up this week, right where Dave left off last week. Uh, Last week, if you remember, he exhorted us to continue to walk in Jesus to live our lives day by day in light of who Christ is and of what he has done for us. So that's not just some static belief, but it drives the way that we live. And so he talked to us last week about walking in Christ, about these things that we should do to ensure we're living a life consistent with the things that we believe. And this week, our text is going to give us kind of a companion warning to that exhortation. Because remember, walking in Jesus means that we say yes to certain things, but it also means that we say no to other things. There are some actions, there are some things in life that are not compatible with walking in Jesus. And we hear that, I think. That's nothing new to you if you're a Christian. We hear that and we tend to think actions, right? There are certain things that I don't do, the whole put on, put off notion that you know, we don't do certain behaviors because of who we are in Christ. But this morning, we're going to be focusing not so much on behaviors, but on ideas that are incompatible with following Christ, ideas that we cannot put on if we're going to walk in Jesus. And this is exceedingly relevant to us today because we live in a culture that is full of competing ideas, that is full of beliefs and notions uh, and suggestions that run contrary to what the Bible says, to what God has revealed in his word, to what Christ has taught us. And our culture would say, look, this is true, this is good. And, And not only that, but they'd say, look, this is perfectly compatible with your Christian faith, right? The day that you could reject an idea as saying, well, I don't believe in that, I'm a Christian, is, is gone because now people will say, well, I'm a Christian too, and I believe that. Like there's, there's, no, there's no dissonance there. There's no divide. And what we're going to see this morning is that, that Paul is going to tell us and tell the Colossians, ideas matter. And there are some ideas that are not compatible with walking in Jesus Christ. And if you believe those ideas, if you build your life on the foundations of those ideas rather than God's word, you'll find that what seems like wisdom can actually leave you in chains. It can leave you empty, and it can leave you as useless as a car broken down on the side of the road on a cold night like tonight. If you have nothing filling you, nothing driving you, you'll find yourself empty. And that's what Paul is warning the Colossians about because of these false teachers that were coming to them. And what he's going to give us is a, is a reminder to reject these false ideas, to avoid spiritual captivity, if you will, and then some reasons that we can do that. How do we counter these false ideas? The answer is simple. It's with Jesus Christ. That's where the focus is going to land. So we're going to read Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10. Uh, Go ahead and open up. Join me as we read these three verses together, and then we will dive right in. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we continue. Our Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. We need you this morning or all of this is in vain. And we pray these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. So this morning as we open our text, as we look at these three verses, uh, it's going to be very, very simple for us this morning in terms of how do we take this and how do we apply it. Because we have one singular command, one thing that we're warned here to do, and then we have two justifications for that command, if you will. So it's going to be do this because of this and because of this. So one command, one thing to take with us today, and two reasons to give us fuel as we seek to obey that command. And the the first command, the only command that we have, comes right off the bat here in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We need to beware empty spirituality. Not all spirituality, not all philosophy, not all ideas are created equal. Some are true and some are not. And even the true ones we can take and twist out of sorts and find ourselves in a world of trouble. So Paul warns the Colossians right off the bat to see to it that no one takes them captive with the false spirituality he's about to discuss. And I want you to notice something right off the bat. That's the stakes that this language communicates. This language that don't let anyone take you captive. Like this, this is not a flippant matter. Like captivity, when we think about this, being enslaved to these ideas, being taken away, this is a big deal. And this means that what he's warning them against, even though we might say, well, it's just ideas, right? What, what harm can an idea do? It can do everything. And so he says, see to it that no one takes you captive with this false spirituality. The word here for takes captive is a term in the Greek for carrying off spoil, carrying off a prize. And so the the picture that this language should kind of paint in your mind is think a bunch of pirates carrying away chests of treasure after a raid. Think about a predator carrying away prey after he strikes. And maybe most vividly and most specifically, think about a conquering army leading away those they have conquered as slaves after the battle. The notion here is see to it that no one takes you away, that you are not a prize for some teacher at the, uh, with the hook being these ideas that they're trying to, to enthrall you with, to mesmerize you with. See to it that no one takes you captive. And I think it's also worth pointing out that this is not a passive thing here. It's not, he doesn't just say, don't get taken captive. He says, see to it. It's this very vivid language. Be on your guard, watch out, look out, and see to it that no one takes you captive. This means we need to be people who are on alert spiritually. You can't just coast through life and, and face the waves that come at you and just kind of take it casually. We have to be on alert, on our guard, see to it. He says that no one takes you captive. So he's warning of those who would seek to snatch them away from Christ and make them their own disciples. So you see, or warning them against ideas that would come along that would seem wise, that would seem attractive, but that will lead them to a place where Christ is not and put them in danger. And they do this, these teachers, these false teachers that are combating them, they do this, Paul says, in, in two ways. He, they do it through philosophy and through empty deceit. 
So we're going to break these two down here and take a look at what are these things that we're to be on our guard against? How do we avoid being taken captive spiritually? What is this philosophy and this empty deceit that we need to be warned against? Well, this first thing about philosophy. So the, the word here, philosophy, uh, comes from the Greek word uh, philosophias. That's the word that we're translating here. And that word philosophias is where we get the word philosophy. It's pretty straightforward here. He's warning them, do not be taken captive by philosophy. But when we think of philosophy, I think we usually think of a very particular discipline of people who think big lofty thoughts about life and and theories and, and all these different things. It's a very academic sounding word, right? Philosophy, the word in the Greek, simply meant Uh, any love of knowledge, a a love of a particular type of knowledge or a passion for a particular science or art. Uh, If you break down the word itself, you can see this present in in the very term, philosophias. Phileo is a Greek word for love. Sophia, the Greek word for wisdom, a love of wisdom. This is what this word meant. It was a, a passion for knowledge, a passion for whatever one's chosen field was, a love for this pursuit of knowledge. And so this is not just saying the classical idea of philosophy is what we need to be on, on, uh, on the lookout for, but through a love of wisdom, a love of knowledge, uh, be on your guard. Don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy. Uh, now, this could sound a little bit odd to us because, you know, it, so is philosophy really such a, a bad and dangerous thing? In fact, if you spent any time looking at our church's website, maybe you've read through the pastor bios on the leadership page, you can learn some really interesting things there, like Dave's inordinate love for bacon and monster energy jinx. Um, but one of the other things that you can learn there is that Tom, and I, he's not here this morning, so this is not going to be nearly as fun as it should be, uh, but Tom is preparing to pursue a PhD in philosophy, right? Like he's very passionate. If you spend any time around Tom talking to him, he's very passionate about philosophy and these kind of ideas. So like, is this saying that that what Tom is doing is bad? Like, should we stage an intervention and keep him from pursuing this degree that will enslave him to these, to these false ideas? Well, let's, let's, Break this down, let's think about the context that Paul is speaking to these people in. Remember, we've talked about what is the theme, what is the purpose of the letter to the Colossians. He is writing to warn them against the ideas of these false teachers who have been troubling them. And we said that this false teaching that is putting the lives of the Colossians at risk is a form of Gnosticism. Uh, these Gnostics were, were early Christian heretics. It was the sect that, that developed very early on in the life of the church, and they were consumed with what? With knowledge with knowledge as an end in and of itself, with pursuing the secret wisdom, these secret ideas about spirituality, and defining their spirituality by what they knew and how much of it they knew. And so what Paul is saying is, be on your guard against these Gnostics who are enraptured with ideas, with esoteric and highbrow debates on spiritual topics. They're consumed by what they know. Don't let them take you captive by your by their philosophy. Be on guard against this philosophy that they espouse. And so here's where we've got to be careful because we could go off the rails. Because logically, let's think about it. If their error, if the Gnostic error was an obsession with knowledge and ideas, then we might think that the appropriate counter to that is to skew knowledge and ideas and just be consumed with practice, right? Don't worry about all that doctrine stuff. Don't worry about all these ideas. Just love each other, right? Just, just anything that, that has to do with practical Christian living, that's where we need to put our attention and, and not worry about these ideas because ideas get you taken captive. Ideas get you into philosophy and all these things that are going to drag you away. But that's an overcorrection, right? 
It's an overcorrection that the Bible does not allow us to take because if you open up the scripture and if you look through it, and if you look through the words of Paul especially, you find they are chock full of ideas. Right? We, we can't live in a world where ideas don't exist. Ideas are foundational to everything that we do. Everything that we do in terms of practical living comes from an idea, a belief about God, about man, about the world, about everything in it. And so we can't just say, well, don't get taken captive by philosophy, so just don't think. Don't have any ideas or thoughts and just, just focus on loving everybody and doing things that way. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Philosophy, though, really is a danger. So what does this mean? What is he saying? That, that these things, these ideas are really dangerous. There is a way that you can get taken captive by philosophy. And I think what we need to focus on here, what we find is that what, what happens in terms of danger and being taken captive happen when the things that we think about, the ideas that we consume, the philosophies that we study become more important to us than the biblical portrayal of Christ living and dying and rising again. Right, philosophy really is a danger. There really is a danger that Tom is going to encounter in his studies, and that danger is to become more enraptured with the ideas of Aristotle or Kant or Descartes or any of these other philosophers that he's going to study instead of the Word of God. To take these human ideas, these human concepts, and to think, well, that, that really makes more sense. There's more wisdom there than there is in the simple words of God. This is a temptation for us. But it's a temptation that's not limited to classical philosophy that we might think. It's limited to, it, it extends to any sort of knowledge, to anything that we might study, even theology. Right? There is a way to get taken captive by theology. Any of you who are in or have been in Bible college or seminary know about the very real danger that theological knowledge can serve to be a source of pride. It can, source, it can serve to puff you up with what you know rather than humbling you to look at God. It can be dangerous in that sense. Theology can lead us away from God just as easily as it can lead us to God when we become consumed with the ideas. We can be consumed that, that we know these true ideas and everybody else doesn't know these true ideas. And really, if they just could understand things the way that we understand things, all the world's problems would be fixed. And so in this case, the warning against philosophy, what makes philosophy dangerous in the sense that Paul's talking about here is not whether it's true or false. It's are we submitting our ideas underneath the word of God and what he has revealed to us to be true? All right, so when we see the warning, don't be taken captive by philosophy. You can be taken captive by false philosophy very easily. You can also be taken captive by true philosophy. Because what these Gnostics were teaching, what these false teachers were teaching, was not something just completely and absolutely foreign to the Christian faith. There were kernels of truth that they would take. As we're going to see in the, in the next couple of weeks, they took some, some kernels of truth from the Old Testament, from Jewish theology, from the Jewish rituals that followed around worship of God in the Old Testament. They obviously incorporated Christ into their teaching. So they had kernels of truth. But using this theology that was a little mixture of truth, a little mixture of error, they were able to try and take people captive, to lock them into a system that was outside of Christ. You can be taken captive by truth just as much as by error when you decide that a certain set of ideas is more important than what God's word says to you. But don't hear me saying this as if truth doesn't matter, because it definitely matters whether the ideas are true or not. 
Because look at what Paul says next. Don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He says these teachers capture by means of empty deceit. And the idea here is that these are ideas that are false and that are empty. They have no substance to them. The word that, is, that we translate here as empty calls up the image of a container with nothing inside. Right? You can have a fantastic looking jar. We can have a great looking pot of coffee back there and it looks really shiny and chromey. But then when you go and you hit the pump, if no coffee comes out, you're going to be very disappointed. You're not going to care what it looks like because there's nothing of substance. It's empty. It leaves you wanting at the end. When Paul speaks of deceit here, he's not necessarily speaking so much as a characteristic of the teachers as he is of their ideas themselves. When when we read this in the ESV, it can be very easy to read it as empty deceit. In other words, they are the deceit of the teacher. They're trying to to entice you, to draw you away. And it's really not the focus of the word here. The, The idea of deceit Really, a better translation is what the NASB does with it, where it translates it as deception, that they try to, that we need to make sure we're not taken captive by philosophy and empty deception. The idea is the idea being taught is false. It's not true. It doesn't hold up on its own. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he refers to the deceitfulness of riches in Matthew 13, 22, the parable of the sower, where he scatters some seed on the road and some seed on rocky ground. And he mentions that, that some seed takes root, but then it is choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. The fact that we see riches and comfort in this life look to be a satisfactory foundation for our lives and they choke out faith. That's the same term there that is used, deceitfulness of riches. It's also the same term that pops up in Hebrews 3.13, where the author encourages us to encourage one another so that we are not uh, hardened to the deceitfulness of sin, right? Sin is deceitful. It promises pleasure. It promises fulfillment. It promises satisfaction, but it leaves you empty. There is a deception there. It's false. It can't stand on its own two legs. The idea that these teachers are selling were like riches, like sin. They were a deception, They promised benefit to us. They promised benefit to the Colossian people. But at the end of the day, they end up offering nothing. They can't save. They can't help. And they're ultimately empty. So this is is the picture that we have painted for us. Do not let anyone take you captive by philosophy, by ideas in and of themselves as as an ultimate end. And do not let anyone take you captive, uh, captive by empty deceit, by ideas that are false, that are hollow, by a coffee container with nothing inside. Be on your guard. Where do these ideas come from? Where does this kind of philosophy and empty deceit come from? It comes from, as Paul says, human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. When we base our thinking, and remember our living is based on our thinking, right? Every practice, everything you do starts with an idea. We always chase what we think will fulfill. Whether you get up this morning and get a cup of coffee or make a piece of toast or a bagel or a bowl of cereal or eat nothing at all, you did it for a reason. You did it because it fulfilled a desire that you had for a certain type of food. If you ate nothing at all, it fulfilled a desire you had to do other things and didn't leave yourself time to eat food. We chase what we believe will fulfill. Our, our ideas, our beliefs dictate our living. And so when we build our ideas on human traditions, rather than what God says, we find ourselves captive to those ideas. They're incapable of fulfilling because they ignore the source of all fulfillment. 
right? That's the real lie that pops up here as Paul talks about these ideas being built on human tradition, that when we build on the foundation of things that men have thought up, of our ideas, of our desires, we are cutting ourselves off from the source of true fulfillment, from the source of true satisfaction, of true joy, of true pleasure. That comes only in God, and it's revealed to us through Christ. And I want you to focus here, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want you to listen to the way that Paul characterizes his teaching and the source of his teaching, how he's communicating his teaching. He says this, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 14, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thought of God except the spirit of God. Let's hit pause right there. We understand the concept that he's putting out here. Who understands the thoughts of a person except for the spirits of that person? Quick, what am I thinking about right now? Nobody knows. Right? If you guess chocolate cupcakes, points for you. But you have no way of knowing what's in my head because you're not in my head. The only one who knows what a person is thinking is the spirit of that person which is in him. And so what Paul is saying here is no one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. What's the inference? What's the only way that we could understand what's in the mind of God? We have to have the Spirit of God. Otherwise, we're, we're just as clueless as someone who's on the outside of my thoughts about chocolate cupcakes. Let's continue. No one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. So Paul's, Paul's point here is that the Spirit that is within us is the Spirit of God. He comes, He dwells with us. Christ has given us His Holy Spirit when we trust in Him that helps us to understand the words of God, the things of God. They're not simple human ideas that anyone has access to because they come from God Himself. Paul says, we have been given not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And so this dictates, this shapes the way that he ministers. Continuing on, he says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. When we teach, when we think, when we shape our ideas around what people say, what men have come up with, we are cutting ourselves off from God, from his source of truth. The only way to understand the mind of God is through the spirit of God. The only way we have the spirit of God is by coming through faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. And when we have the spirit, he helps us to understand God's words, God's concepts, God's ideas, God's foundations. And so the argument that Paul is making to the Colossians here is you have received Christ. Remember last week, Dave, therefore, just as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. He's talking to believers and he says, you've received Christ. So think like it. Dwell in your mind by God's spirit and not the world's spirit. Reject human tradition, which sounds fancy on the outside. Remember what he said in 1 in Corinthians, spiritual things seem like foolishness to the world. They seem like folly to men. But this is truth. You have the spirit, and so think 
like one who has the Spirit. Don't be taken captive according to human tradition. And then we have this word translated here as elemental spirit. So this philosophy and empty deceit comes according to human tradition, and it comes according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this is a little bit more of a a tricky translation and a trickier idea to get our mind around. The, The word that we translate here is a term that can be used in several different ways to mean foundational things the building blocks of something. And it could be used, it's used in the Bible to, de- to describe the building blocks of the natural world in 2 Peter 3.10, when he refers to these foundational things melting away at the second coming, at the last judgment, that what seems firm and, and just bedrock to the world's existence is actually going to burn away like chaff when Christ comes again. So it can be, it be, can be used about the building blocks of the natural world. It can be used to describe the basic principles of baby Christianity, if you will. Uh, such as in Hebrews 5.12, where the author of Hebrews says to the people that, look, you guys ought to be teachers by now. You've been at this long enough. But instead, you're you're still needing the basics. You're still needing the foundational principles to be taught to you. That word there is the same word that shows up here in terms of being elemental spirits, these foundations. So the focus here is that these ideas are things that take people captive. They're based on the world's basics whether we're talking about basic principles of human wisdom, whether we're talking about the basic spiritual forces that govern this world, the prince of the power of the air. That's why the ESV translates as elemental spirits, that this is an earthly, a worldly uh, way of thinking, of spiritual thinking that, that leads to these things. But it's talking about ideas that are built not on God's foundations, but on the world's foundations, the basic principles and foundations that this world clings to. And when we, when we look at that, when we look at the world's wisdom coming into, into shape here as we think about human tradition and these elemental spirits, this is the idea of a wisdom, of a knowledge that is founded on the world's principles. When we look at, at Paul's teaching, he, he encourages us very sharply to, to run away from that, to run away from, God's, or from the world's wisdom. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 19 through 21, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Paul says that in the context of he's, he's combating the factiousness of the Corinthian church. Remember that, you know, if you've read 1 Corinthians, they really had their favorite teachers, their favorite preachers, and they were like all about that clique. Some people said, hey, I'm, I'm a Paul guy. I'm a Peter guy. I'm an Apollos guy. The really spiritual ones were like, well, I'm a Jesus guy. So, And what they were doing was setting themselves up with these, these factions, these, these groups. And what Paul is saying to them is, that's how the world operates. The world collects human teachers that they like and that they follow. But that's not the way that God works. The the world's wisdom is is folly. It's foolishness with God. So what are you doing boasting in men, even good men, even good teachers? He says, all things are yours. You've been given everything in Christ. And we're going to get there in our own text here a little bit later as, as Paul uses that as ammunition. But the idea is just why on earth would you go after the teachings of men and hold them up as the end all be all when you have all things that are given to you from Christ? And he's going to emphasize this idea of human tradition and worldly wisdom even, even more at the end of verse 8 through contrast, right? He says, these things come by human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. They're from the world's traditions and principles, and not from Jesus. 
So as you read verse 8, as we think about this philosophy, this empty deceit, which comes from human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world, the idea here, the take-home is don't be led astray by thoughts, by ideas, by beliefs that come from man's ideas and not from God's ideas, that are discerned by the spirit of the world and not by the spirit of God, which is ours in Christ. And so how do we start to think through this? Right? The, I titled the sermon, Avoiding Spiritual Captivity, which suggests that we need to take from it, how do we avoid spiritual captivity? How do we see to it that no one takes us captive? Well, how do I begin to filter through my life and make sure that I'm not on the hook for some of this stuff? Where do your ideas come from? Where do your beliefs about the world come from? Your beliefs about God? Your beliefs about people, are they generally good? Your beliefs about relationships, how are they supposed to work? Your beliefs about justice, what is true justice? How is it achieved in this world? Your beliefs about sexuality, what's right and wrong? Your beliefs about religion, your beliefs about the church. Where are these ideas coming from? Are you building your life and faith on a foundation of human ideas? Or can you trace your thinking back to God's words? So as you go through this week, as you're thinking about what you should be doing with your life, as you're thinking about the events that you see portrayed on TV or in a blog post that you read about, as you think about life, and as you have thoughts that come up with, man, that shouldn't be that way, or that should be this way, or this is what I should do, or this is what I desire, or this is the way that the world should work, or this is what the church should look like, all of these thoughts that you have, start to ask yourself, can I trace them back to the Bible? If I were to ask you in conversation, why do you believe that? Whatever the topic is, could be anything, but I ask you, why do you believe that? Could you reverse engineer your line of thinking and arrive at God's word? If not, then it's a sign that you probably have built your thinking on human ideas. There might be some truth mixed in. There, it might be good philosophy, but at the end of the day, if you can't trace it back to what God has revealed through his word, then you can't say it's built on God's Ideas. It's built on things that are spiritually discerned. So start to ask yourself that question. Are you more enthralled with what people have to say or what God has said? Right? What, what is it that really makes an idea attractive to you? Does it have to come from a really great teacher? You know, Heather, Heather has made fun of me in the past, and it's kind of become a running joke that um, she could say something and, you know, and, and, talk about a principle or an idea, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. And then maybe the next week I come back, you know what, I was listening to a sermon by John Piper this week, and he said this, and it's almost exactly what she said before. I'm like, isn't that amazing? She's like, yeah, it is. It kind of makes sense. I wonder where I've heard that before. But because it came from John Piper, now suddenly it's this amazing and wonderful idea. Do you put more stock into who says something, into a, a, a very wise or learned teacher or someone who's very respectable, if they say an idea, does it suddenly carry stock with you? Are you more enthralled with what people have to say or what God has said? And here's a big one. When God's word comes into conflict with your world-shaped thinking, so when you're doing your backtracing, your reverse engineering, can I trace this to God's word and I find out, no, I really don't have any biblical foundation for why I believe that. When that conflict comes into focus, God's word, your world-shaped thinking, who wins? Are you willing to change? 
Are you willing to discard an idea that, that you might cling to? It might be something that gives you comfort, that gives you pride, that gives you clarity. But if you realize that it's contrary to what God has said, are you willing to cast it aside? Or do you hold God's word at arm's length and hold on to your own ideas? Who's master of your thinking? What is your foundation built upon? Paul wants us to know that when our ideas and our philosophy are shaped by human ideas rather than God's words, we are enslaved to a powerless master. It's empty. It gives us nothing. It doesn't sustain us. It doesn't bring us joy. It doesn't bring us fulfillment. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So why is it so important that we allow Christ to shape our thinking? Why is it so important that we build our thinking on God's word rather than on what people have to say? Well, because verse 9 tells us, for, so this is, do all of these things, see to it, don't let anyone take you captive, because in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Beware empty spirituality because Christ is the source. He's everything, right? Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's Lord. He is the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who sustains all things. Paul is making this argument based on the foundation of what he has said in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Remember, we spent a few weeks studying this passage. Remember what he told the Colossians? He said, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You can almost hear Paul at the end. Did I leave anything out? Have we covered all the bases there? Christ is a big deal. He's God. He's supreme over everything. And as you notice in that passage, he says, uh, where is it? In verse 20 or verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here in 2.9, he's calling back to that. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Calling our minds to what he said just a few paragraphs before. Why should we reject human tradition and human thinking and, and instead build on the foundation of Christ? Because he's Jesus. He's God. He's Lord. He's before all things. He is supreme over all creation. He is the source of wisdom. He is the source of knowledge. That is who you want shaping your thinking. That's who you want to inform the building blocks that undergird your thoughts about everything, politics, religion, uh, faith, family, sexuality, uh, interpersonal relationships, you know, scrabble. I, everything is built on the foundation of wisdom that we receive from Jesus Christ because he's God. If things have been made and designed by God, right, what did he create? Everything. What did he design? Everything. If everything has been made and designed by God, and all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus, 
shouldn't we want to turn to Jesus for wisdom about how we should live in the world? Right? When you want to understand something, you go to the designer. You go to the maker. Right? I, I was hooking up some uh, audio and, and TV equipment in my house a couple weeks ago, and I was having a problem with my AV receiver. It wasn't doing something that all the documentation said it should be able to do. And I realized that the, I you know, troubleshot, this is the problem. Something in this receiver is, is failing to work like it should. So what did I do? Well, it's a Sony receiver, so I went to Sony's customer service website. I ended up chatting with a rep from Sony who was able to walk me through, try this, nope, that didn't work, try this, nope, that didn't work. Hey, how about try this? And I did that, and it worked. Now, when my Sony receiver had a problem, I didn't call Kerrig. I didn't call Vizio. I didn't call Apple. I didn't call Microsoft. I didn't call any other company that makes any other host of products. I called Sony because they made the thing. They should know how it works. When we, when we go anywhere other than to Christ for knowledge, we might as well be calling up Kerrig to tell us how our AV receiver is supposed to work. We want to call the people who've designed it, who programmed it, who made it to function in a certain way. God has made this whole world. He's made this whole life and everything in it. He's created us. And he is the one who can inform us how things are supposed to work. Go to the source for wisdom. Don't listen to human tradition. Don't listen to human wisdom. Listen to what God's word says. Go and see. When you're, when you're wondering, what should I do in this circumstance, in this situation? Go to the word. Now, I mean, it's not going to be as easy as just like let it fall open and a magic verse is going to come out and say, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. This comes from a, a grounding in God's word. You've got to know it. You've got to be filling your minds with it. Get it down deep so that when those moments come where you need decision, where you need direction, where you have to build upon a foundation of ideas to know how to live, that foundation is in there. You might need help figuring it out, thinking it through, but, but the basics are installed. You already have that driving your thinking. So, so think about things this way. We talked about earlier, the, running that diagnostic, your ideas about all these different areas. Do you want to know how to live in those areas? Do you want to know God? Well, ask the one in whom all deity dwells bodily. All deity, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. So you want to know God? Look at Jesus, and you're going to see him. You want to know yourself? You want to know how to deal with your, your sins, your shortcomings, your frustrations, ask the one who created you, who knows how you tick better than yourself, who knows how you work, who knows what your mind and what your spirit is drawn to and knows the remedy that will pull you out of it. You want to know how to live in harmony with others? Ask the one who has lived in perfect fellowship within himself for all eternity. Right? The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most core foundational beliefs that can drive you as you as you seek to live in fellowship with other people. Because it reminds you that God, in, in, when he tells us to love one another, to do all these one another's with people within the church, like fellowship is not an abstract for God. He experiences it within himself. Three persons together in one, in one God, in one essence, in perfect harmony. God had fellowship with himself before anything was made. And so if you want to know how to live in perfect harmony with others, how about try the one who's done it forever? who knows, who designed relationship as a, as a mirror of his own beyond our comprehension essence, 
Like we can't understand the Trinity. We can't understand how on earth God can be three and one at the same time. But he's built this world in a way that reflects, like a, like a dim reflection in a lake, the essence of who he is. And so if we want to understand how to live in this dim reflection, let's look to the source. Look to the one who created all things. You want to know how to, how to have a good view of sexuality? How to understand it? Ask the one who created us male and female. Where did it come from? Right there in the beginning. He created them male and female. You want to know how male and female are supposed to associate or are supposed to work together for God's glory? Ask him. You want to know how to raise kids? Ask the one who has revealed himself to us as our perfect father. Right? God chooses to reveal himself to us as God the Father. And so as we seem to seek to understand like, what, what does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a mother? What he's doing is he's inviting us to say, look at me. Look at, how I, look at how I am with you. Look at how I've treated you. Look at how I loved you. You want to know what Christian living looks like? Ask the one who by his spirit inspired letters to churches instructing them on how to walk in obedience to Christ. Man, man how should I as a Christian live in this messed up pluralistic culture that I find myself in. If only there were like 13 books that were written exactly about that thing. And they're right here. Dig in, mine it out. God has given us all things. Right? That's what, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Don't boast in men. You've been given everything. You've had the mind of God laid open before you. Christ is the source of all wisdom, of all knowledge, of everything that you need. Don't run back to human teachers. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and ideas that are, that are empty at, at their core. Look to Christ. Look to the source. If the fullness of all deity dwells in Jesus, then why would we not look to him as the source of all knowledge and wisdom? Think about this. This is where the irony really gets ratcheted up. Why would you look at a philosophy that is grounded in human tradition and the principles of the world when we are the ones who have wrecked this thing? Right? By following our own lead, we got ourselves kicked out of the garden. We have brought all sorts of evil and suffering and angst into this world. We have built frustration upon frustration. You look around the world and it's, it's, it's bloodshed, it's, it's horrible suffering, it's all of these things. Humanity's track record is not fantastic. But yet we think, what should I do? Well, well what does the world say I should do? Right? do we, think we're, we're like, we think we're going to get it right this time. Like, it's like Charlie Brown and Lucy in the football. This time, it, she's really not going to pull it away. I can kick it. And it never ends well. Why would we look to the ones who have wrecked this thing rather than the one who designed it and who is remaking it in his image for his glory and our good forever? But here's where it really gets driven home. So don't, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit because Christ is the source, because he's the source of all wisdom, all knowledge, everything that you need. But not only that, he's not just the source, he's your source. And this is the, is the true strength and power that Paul wants them to lay hold of in verse 10. Not only is he the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, but verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul doesn't just point these believers to Jesus as abstract idea. Don't, don't follow the philosophy of the world, but follow this philosophy of Jesus. 
He points them to Jesus as the one who fills them, who is with them, who is the head over the church. He's not just the source of wisdom in some impersonal Eastern mysticism sort of way. Right? I think a lot of times we, we treat Jesus like the force from Star Wars, right? You know, if I just concentrate enough and think enough, then I can make the X-Wing come out of the swamp. Like, that's how it's going to work. Is, is we, we've allowed so many cultural ideas to mix in our minds with what spirituality is supposed to look like. And we take our cues from that. But Jesus isn't, isn't an impersonal force. He is your source if you are a Christian. He dwells in you, he fills you, and he leads you as part of his people. Remember who Paul's writing to. This is a letter written to Christians. He's telling them to hold on. Just as you received Jesus, so continue to walk in him. He's not telling outsiders, hey, listen to this Jesus guy. As one voice among many, he's the one that you really need to focus on. No, he is telling them, he's telling believers to find their wisdom and their knowledge in the one who created them, in the one who has redeemed them, in the one who dwells with them, the one who dwells in them, the one who keeps his loving, sovereign hand upon them as they gather to worship. Look to him. He's the source of all wisdom, yes, but he's your source of all wisdom. He is as near as your next breath. He promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the age. These are promises that are made by a person to a person. The force doesn't make promises, right? The force doesn't come and walk alongside you, and it doesn't know what it means to be happy, to be sad, to be tempted, to be suffering. Jesus knows all these things because he is a person and he experienced all these things. And he stands ready to give you wisdom. This is a personal grounding in Jesus Christ, not an abstract idea that you can learn about in a classroom. This message will never make sense to you if you don't know Jesus. Just knowing about Jesus won't cut it. If you see Jesus as the, the buffet of worldly philosophies and you have Jesus and you have Buddha and you have atheism and you have agnosticism and you have Gnosticism, you have all of these things. And, you know, Jesus, he seems like he's got some pretty good things to say, right? I mean, makes a lot of sense and, and, and has some good stuff. Um, but, I mean, he also says some crazy stuff like about how he's the source of all things and he created all things and he's God. Like that seems like, you know, you're getting out over your skis a little bit here, Jesus. If we evaluate him as one option among many, he doesn't make any sense. If we see him as our savior, our Lord, the one who has revealed himself to us in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily, well, that's a different thing altogether. Once you meet Christ, once you come face to face with the wonder, the awe, the glory inherent in who he is and in how he has revealed himself to you, you'll desire to know him more. The attractiveness of his wisdom over against the world's wisdom becomes a no-brainer. This is where the gospel is your fuel for, for grabbing wisdom, for attaining wisdom. This is why God can say through James that if any man lacks wisdom, ask God who freely gives. He freely gives because he and his spirit lives within us because he has Christ that he has given to us and Christ stands before the throne of God above interceding on my behalf right now. And so I know that that prayer for wisdom will be answered because how can he who did not withhold him own, his own son not freely give us all things? 
Submitting to God's word rather than worldly ideas is, is what we need to do. If we know Christ, why would I go anywhere else? The gospel invites us to trust in Jesus. He lived, he died for me, for my sin. He rose again from the dead. Victory over sin, victory over the grave, coming again to judge the living and the dead, to bring all things to their fulfillment, to make all things right, to usher in his perfect world forevermore. And I get to live in it, not just as some lowly serf, but as a co-heir with him, as a brother of Christ, as a recipient of the fullness of God's grace. That gospel is what drives me to come to Christ in wisdom. That gospel is what makes Jesus the, the, the source, the foundation of everything that I think. He's not just an idea. He's not just a notion. This is why if you put your hope in theology as an end in, uh, of itself, you're going to come up empty. You're going to be led into pride. You're going to be led into thinking that your knowledge, that your ideas are what give you significance and standing. They're what make you able to withstand whatever the world brings your way. It's not those ideas. It's not those truths. It's that those truths direct you to Jesus. That's Paul's argument in a nutshell in 8 through 10, is don't let anyone take you captive by ideas which are severed from the reality of who Jesus Christ is. That's what philosophy and empty deceit looks like. When we wed our ideas to the person of Jesus Christ, to his gospel, to his resurrection, to his atoning death for me, to his promises that he is going to deliver us safely home. When we, when we link our ideas to that reality, we will have strength. We will have wisdom. We will have what we need to, to face whatever this world brings our way. And if we fail to trust him, then we'll reject his wisdom. We'll think we can do it better. We'll think we have a smarter way of bringing about the change that we want to see in this world. Because the ultimate problem that draws us away after human ideas is not an intellectual problem, right? Paul is not saying here, hey, don't listen to the smart guys, listen to Jesus because he's smarter. The problem is spiritual. The problem is a moral one. We have rejected the source of all wisdom and knowledge, and we've turned to our own ideas. And we go back to that well again and again and again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So what do we do with this? There's a couple ways you could hear this. Maybe you hear this message and you're skeptical. This is just another example of Christians rejecting science, logic, reason, whatever your preconceived notion of faith is, right? You know, don't listen to philosophy or ideas, just trust in Jesus. You hear me say that to reject worldly thinking and cling to Jesus, you hear it as a call to reject logic and critical thinking and blindly embrace some religious idea with no evidence. But Jesus isn't any, is not anti-intellectual. He is, after all, the one who created our intellect, Paul, this Paul who is writing these things, walked into the forum at Athens and traded in ideas with the philosophers who gathered there. His writings are filled with reasoned arguments, points, explanations, and illustrations. So this is not God and faith at war with science and ideas. It doesn't hold up to scrutiny that way. But what this is, is a call to us 
to reevaluate and if necessary to smash the way that we, that we base our thinking. Everything must be grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ, in his word, in his gospel, in his truth. If we stack things on top of that, and can draw a line tracing our ideas about science, about philosophy, about politics, about uh, sexuality, about all of these things that our world spends its time thinking about. If we can trace those ideas back to the foundation of Christ and who he is, then we will be vibrant. We will be filled with life and joy, and we will have what we need to have those conversations with people, to direct them towards ultimate joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. But if our ideas can't be traced to the root, if they're severed from Christ, then we're going to come up empty. So look at your thinking this morning and and ask yourself, can I make those connections? I mentioned earlier, Tom's getting ready to pursue a PhD in philosophy. Uh, So we ask, could, could it be dangerous? Like, should we have that intervention? Tom, if you're listening, are we going to have to like surround you when you get home later today? Be like, dude, no degrees. No, we're not going to do that. So why not? Why do I not think it's a bad idea for him to pursue those studies? Because it is dangerous, right? He could get, and people do all the time, who go and they study and they get, they get carried away. They get taken captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, by ideas that cannot satisfy. But I know Tom, and I know where he built his foundation. And I know that he clings to the word of God. And so because he's ordered his life and his foundation by tying them to the source, by looking to Christ as the source of his wisdom, and he strives day by day to bring his life more and more in conformance to God's word and to his wisdom, I know with that grounding, with that foundation, his studies are going to serve to glorify God. Because when we take our intellect, when we pursue ideas, when we pursue thinking through things about the world and about all the things that God has made and, and do so in a way that builds on the foundation of God's word, we bring glory to God. God hasn't left his word just in a box for us to sit and meditate on and keep it on Sundays and be spiritual with it, but it's supposed to transform the world through his people. When God's word informs God's people, they transform God's world. That's how philosophy works. That's how a love of wisdom, a love of knowledge, a passion for a particular art or science, whatever it is that God has wired you to love, whether that's your profession, whether that's a hobby, whether that's something that, that you just you love to do, you love to talk about it, whatever that is, when you allow God's word to inform you as God's person and you base your thinking on that, you can transform the world because you are you are shaping your knowledge, your ideas, your beliefs around that which is true. And that which is true will always work. That which is not will always crumble because that's the way God's made the world. It's his world. It plays by his rules. But no matter what you think, no matter what you do, no matter how you evaluate your thinking this week, always, always, always trace back to the source not just the source, but your source. And that's why there's, there's really nothing better that we could do to, to hammer this home than to take communion at the end of the service, right? When I th- go from here and I think, God, God how, how does my thinking need to change? Where am I being taken captive to philosophy and empty deceit? How, where am I not being true to what you say, to your word? 
it can be easy to think, all right, well, I just got to think the right thoughts and fix things, and then we'll be good. No, what I need is to remember Jesus, to remember his word, to remember his gospel, and to, to build that, to fall more in love with who he is and what he's done for me. That's going to drive me to, to, to build my thinking the right way. And so in just a minute, as we partake in the bread, as we partake in the wine, may it remind you of the sweetness of your Savior, of his goodness, of the fact that he is satisfying always. And so when you hit that moment this week where you need to shape your thinking, why on earth would you not go to Christ? Why on earth would you not cling to him? Because he's going to satisfy. Just as he satisfies you in his atoning death and resurrection, just as he's given your life meaning and purpose that it would not otherwise have, he can handle this other thing. He can handle this other idea. He can handle this other crisis of thought or of faith because he always satisfies and the world doesn't. And so we're going to take communion, we're going to remember what he has done, and we're going to allow that to be fuel this week to know all that I have, all that I think, all that I am is dependent on who he is because he fills me. The source of all deity dwells in Jesus, and he fills me. He's with me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. So we're going to read our passage in 1 Corinthians and then we're going to take communion together. Go ahead and read this text, read the underlined portion with me as we continue on in our worship. Paul says, For, what I, rece- for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Next slide. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Communion is is sermon application. This is how we respond to the word of God. How do we obey the command to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty and deceit? Remember Jesus. Remember your source. And that's what we're about to do. We're about to do this in remembrance of him. It is an opportunity to call to your mind the wonder of your Savior. And so if you're following Christ, if you're a baptized believer in Jesus, we invite you to, to get up as the band plays, come to the back, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine, and remember, remember who he is. Remember him as your source, as the one who fills you, and let that be fuel for your thinking and thus for your living in the week to come. If you're not a Christian, then I would encourage you, don't take communion, uh, but I'm going to hang out in the back and would love to talk more about these ideas and about the gospel message about Christ that undergirds everything, why we remember him, why he's our source, why he is the core for all that we do and say and think. Uh, but I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come up. Uh, they're going to play for us. I'm going to pray, and we're going to take some time to reflect to think through these things. Like don't, don't just rush through to communion. We're not just getting to the next step, but, but talk to God. Examine yourself. Look and ask, God, where is my thinking off? Where am I not rooted to the source like I should be? And, and where does my mind need to change? 
Where does your word need to win out over my thinking? And he'll call those things to mind. He'll call them to mind this morning. He'll call them to mind throughout the week. But reflect, examine yourself, and then be reminded, be encouraged, be strengthened by remembering Christ, your source, your Savior, your God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a few minutes to examine, and we'll continue on in our worship.